0: Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance
1: science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes.
2: Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the editor-in-chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us for this episode of AJHP Voices. Pregnancy-related deaths in the United States have increased consistently since 1987. Given the challenges with the use of medications in pregnant people, this is an area with potential for expanded pharmacist involvement. Joining me today to talk about this topic, based on their recent HHP article, are Dr. Stephen Small, Pediatric Clinical Pharmacist Specialist, Denver Health Medical Center, and Dr. Regis Lucia. Pediatric clinical staff pharmacist, Denver Health and Hospital Authority. Thank you both for joining me. How are you guys doing today?
0: Doing well. Thank you for having
1: us. This is a pleasure. Very well. Thank you. So, Regis, let me
2: start with you. In the opening to the to to today's podcast, I mentioned the changes in mortality since 1987 but could you talk about the trends with pregnancy related deaths what what has been observed over the last few decades
1: so pregnancy and childbirth in the US is riskier now than it has been in previous decades and a major contributor to this is likely the shift in maternal age with more women postponing conception until later in life this also coincides with more patients having comorbidities alongside their pregnancy such as renal failure cardiac disease and even some disease states such as shock. The US has seen a rise in these comorbidities that almost doubles what we saw in the 1990s. And the major causes of death in modern cases would be postpartum hemorrhage, hypertensive diseases, and infection. And it's estimated that four out of every five pregnancy related deaths are considered preventable. This, compared with other developed countries such as New Zealand, the UK or Germany, women in the US experience more late maternal deaths. And for transparency, there's also some differences in the metrics that we're using. PMSS, which is the Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System that the CDC uses, evaluates paternal deaths on a 365-day period following delivery. While most European countries uh, use WHO's monitoring system, which is a 42-day tracking system. And while both these systems capture mortalities, Where incidence is highest, which is one to six weeks, we can't discredit a longer surveillance period, but it is unlikely to solely account for the U.S.'s higher mortality rate that is seen when you're comparing between countries.
2: Along with a lot of the contributors that Regis talked about, how do inequities in care come into play in terms of their contribution to maternal mortality?
0: Yeah, well, we were kind of looking into the, the research with this article, we were really surprised to see how multifactorial some of these disparities are and pretty widespread as well. Something that really struck out to us was first off, just geography can play a role. For example, when we talk about OB care in a metro setting versus maybe a rural setting, that access can get very different very quickly. Uh, whereas you might have a hospital down the street that can help you deliver your baby in a rural setting it may be hours away. And as we know, these deliveries can be very precipitous, right? So just getting to the hospital in time can be a challenge during the labor process. In addition, we have to also acknowledge with the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year, that does set up a very distinct uh, patchwork of laws between different states regarding reproductive health and abortion care. Right, neighboring states could have completely opposite uh, laws regarding access to those abortion services. And you could also argue that also may cause a chilling effect of OB providers in one state, and maybe even lead to a migration of OB providers from one state to another, which actually furthers that disparity um, with with uh, geography there, which is something we're even starting to see more in the news, albeit panicked anag- In addition, something that struck us too was just a major difference in data and research available for this patient population. Something I like that we mentioned in our article is that regarding kinetic studies, right? There's over 30,000 kinetic studies done since the 1960s, yet ones done in OB patients constituted less than 2% of of those study groups. Uh, And we know that it's not that our OB population is less than 2% of the country, right? There is a there's a pretty stark disparity there as well. And I think another key thing that we've thought about as a group is just a disparity in access to care guidelines for this population. For example, uh, I like to think of IDSA and their guidelines for infectious disease. Those are free and available to anyone searching for them online. When we start talking about OB-specific guidelines, sometimes, and frankly many times, they're set up behind a paywall, or you have to be a member of that organization to read that, or uh, have a paid subscription for that journal, and perhaps not everyone has access to that. So even access to information to treat this population is disparate. And you have to wonder how is that impacting our care and feeding into these outcomes that we're seeing worsen over time. Got
2: it. So Regis, you have a foundation here of individuals who may have an in- increased risk for a n- because of a number of factors, both physiologic and demographic, and there are disparities that come into play. Then you layer over that the complex medication use and pharmacologic challenges that exist in caring for pregnant people. Can you talk a bit about those?
1: So obstetric care is complicated by both pharmacologic and logistical challenges. From a pharmacologic standpoint, this patient population has unique physiology and pharmacokinetics. So for all the PKPD gurus out there, complex changes in our AD DME, which would be absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination, are going to occur throughout pregnancy. But we've only seen a small fraction, which is less than 2% of the nearly 36,000 pharmacokinetic studies between 1967 and 2013, involve pregnant patients. So extrapolating this data outside this population can result in unpredictable pharmacokinetics for both mother and the fetus. And this can compromise medication safety and efficacy. And while we're discussing maternal pregnancy data and the inadequacies in knowing how to use certain medications, there's even less information that it concerns fetal pharmacology. And ideally, we'd be doing an evaluation on a medication's teratogenic potential on every medication that's prescribed to a woman of childbearing age. But it's, this isn't super practical, and it's probably impeded by confounding factors, uh, a baseline limited amount of knowledge and data, and then shared decision-making with par- patients regarding balance of benefits and risks. But a 2019 study showed that about 25% or a quarter of women that are childbearing, of childbearing potential uh, were still being prescribed medications that could pose fetal risk. And obstetrics already has a limited number of medications that have accepted safety during pregnancy. And so logistically, there's also challenges, especially with the continuation of drug shortages that affect the supply of some of these meds. And they might be medications such as genomycin, clindamycin, uh, or hydralazine, which are all very critical in the way that we've protocolized obstetric care. Did you have anything to add, Steve? It's getting so complex from
0: a medication delivery standpoint, yes, shortages, absolutely. Can we even get the drug in the first place? But then making sure those drugs are used safely and appropriately, we were really surprised how many drugs we use in our obstetrics unit that are on the ISMP high alert medication list, a vast number that I think we feature in a table in our article. And. I think Regis brought up a really good quote in that article. It's one of my favorite where he said that, you know, the criteria for admission for pregnancy in a hospital is static. It's pregnancy, right? But we have, All these different specialties that kind of play here, like infectious disease, elements of critical care, right, hematology. Uh, There's so many different specialties that intersect, and it makes it one really big, complex situation. And the more complex it gets, the higher risk of errors and potentially poor outcomes. And I think we kind of forget that sometimes as a health system nationally. These aren't just Patients here for one reason, they're here for one reason that intersects several others. And how do we manage all those appropriately to give them the best care possible?
2: Regis, are there specific medications that are most challenging
1: One of the big challenges is that in obstetric care, we use a lot of routine high-risk medications like antithrombotic agents for thromboembolism prevention and treatment, as well as medications for diabetes management, such as differing insulin formulations, uh, would be two good examples. And We're routinely using and applying these high-risk medications in a relatively routine protocolized environment. And some medications like oxytocin, they're affected by drug shortages, which have a tremendous impact on labor induction augmentation. So with oxytocin, as an example... This is also a treatment option for postpartum hemorrhage control. So we have operational challenges that are also being added to this mix, where shortages can have downstream effects, such as our obstetric teams not being as familiar with the medication formulations or using substitutions that deviate from the standard workflow or practice. And uh, that in itself can create issues where maybe patients aren't receiving care as timely as they could.
2: So, Stephen, what's the current status of pharmacist roles in the obstetric setting?
0: Yeah, I would say the short answer is we have no idea. (laughs) Right now, we don't have any sort of national survey data, perhaps to show us how many pharmacists are working in obstetrics, perhaps as a specialty, as maybe a side responsibility of their current role. We're just lacking that kind of context. Uh, So that is something that we stress in our article should probably be one of our first steps. What is the lay of the land currently for obstetric roles in pharmacy? For example, We play a pretty significant presence in our obstetrics unit, but that's not to say that a hospital down the street in Denver, Colorado is doing the same thing. For example, there might be hospitals in the country where pharmacists aren't verifying obstetric orders, period. So we'd love to maybe get some more data before we start venturing and pioneering into this kind of frontier, just to know what we're up against, because it could be monumental or it could be easy. But right now, we're kind of in the blind, to be totally frank.
2: In terms of what led both of you to into this area of specialty, what piqued your interest or what ignited a passion for you to become so involved in this area? Regis, you want to start off with that one?
1: Absolutely. So before I worked at Denver Health, I worked at a ped specific hospital. Before that, I was in rural care, and in rural care, there was a huge discrepancy in the policy procedures, uh, that the familiarity of our service lines regarding pediatric care. And in that role, I worked in a vastly different capacity on that obstetrics unit, which is our busiest unit. We saw a lot of uh, immigrant populations, a lot of substance abuse, and maybe patients that have unstable housing, and seeing how that all loops in, having patients that come into our service and had no prenatal care, so we don't know where they're at, and trying to work through that, or really making like low-hanging fruit interventions on something that probably should have been caught just based off of electronic medical record keeping system, safety checks that just were not in place, and realizing how underserved the population was in in that rural setting. And the setup of that hospital was very similar to the way that Denver Health is set up. Uh, We do a lot of uh, immigrant populations, underserved uh, uh, patients with unstable housing, substance abuse disorder, and it was also a facility where pediatrics was a segment of care within an adult hospital. So most of our electronic uh, medical record is built to service the adult population. So safety checks may be with drug dosing or normal safety alerts like ceftriaxone in less than 30 days for neonates. Those weren't in place in the hospital. And we kind of have a, a similar issue with Like, how are we adapting our electronic medical record and alerts and safety for pediatrics within an adult hospital? Uh, So after I left rural care, I ended up working specifically in pediatrics. And I feel very useful in my role and being able to help those patients that maybe are more underserved.
2: Stephen, what about you? What led you into this area of practice?
0: I'll admit it's a very winding path. Uh, So to start off with, I had never expected to go into pediatrics. It was in fact probably the last specialty I had intended to go into. But uh, in my residency year, pediatrics and maternal health was actually a required rotation at Denver Health where I did my PGY1. And what I really enjoyed about that role is the emphasis on medication safety and many, many opportunities to help with that. Now, regarding obstetrics, I'll admit when I went in my pediatrics role, I saw them more as that sort of ancillary role. I didn't give it enough of the credit that I really deserved at the beginning of my career. But as time has gone on, and frankly, having a sister that has had three healthy children, I realized, oh my goodness, this is such an important facet of complex medical care. And are we truly serving this population as best as we can as a country. Uh, and kind of seeing this data evolve over the course of my short career thus far, uh, I just saw an absolute need that we need to address this and leaning more into those services at our own institution and seeing how we can help. Well, and that's a, a
2: perfect segue in when you talk about leaning more into the services. Regis, can uh, can you talk about some of the, the potential obstetric-specific pharmacy services that you discussed in the article?
1: Yeah, I'm going to approach this from three different potential care areas. Uh, The first one would be inpatient where we could do therapeutic drug monitoring for commonly used medications such as gentamicin, vancomycin, or even magnesium would be an area where collaborative practice agreements could help optimize obstetric care. From an emergency response standpoint, if we had obstetric-oriented pharmacists in high-risk deliveries, attending stroke alerts, or potentially um, responding to postpartum hemorrhage, these would be opportunities for making sure that pharmacologic interventions are appropriate based on the most up-to-date literature and guidance. And then from the ambulatory side of things, potentially having pharmacists' input for substance use disorder management is a growing area where having more subspecialties hands on deck could help guide, manage, or retain patients in care. Yeah, Steve, do you have anything else to add to that?
0: Sure. I, I think... Coming up with some of the service ideas is the most fun part of writing this article because there's we sort of brainstorm, what, what are we already doing and what can we add on to it potentially, given the changing environment for obstetrics in the country? Things like substance use disorder management to prevent neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome or to help manage that if it occurs. With the new legal landscape, abortion medication compliance would be a pivotal role pharmacists in uh, OB care. Even penicillin skin testing, preferably before delivery, can actually help with some of the stewardship with antibiotics that are frequently used in, in a delivery admission uh, and to better uh, suit those patients and their needs. And even perhaps things like long-acting reversible contraceptive administration, like injecting um, progesterone, intramuscular injections. There's so many potential ideas that exist out there in the inpatient outpatient space. I think the only challenge is making sure we don't bite off more than we can chew, to be totally honest. So
2: in the short time we have left, Stephen, in the article, you identified some priority areas for expanding pharmacists' role. You touched upon implications for education, practice settings, board certification research. Can you delve into some of those Priority
0: areas just a bit more? Certainly. Absolutely. I think one of the key initial points is research. Like we mentioned earlier, what are we up against? What is current OB clinical pharmacy practice in the country? I think exploring that first and foremost will help uh, set up a framework for how we proceed into the future, because we don't know where, where we're going until we know where we've been, right? So I'm thinking research on that front is really important to lay the landscape, and that will set Research up down the line, uh, more ob clinical pharmacy, uh, pharmacy specific research and kinetics, uh, clinical practices and new innovations and services we can add, right. I think that can also inform education. I can anecdotally say that my pharmacy school education with obstetrics was very minimal. In fact, with a lot of our new learners in the satellite from residents to pharmacy students, it's not uncommon for us to have to review the developmental stages in pregnancy. What are those uh, changes in kinetics? I think we can all agree we know how Babies are conceived, but what happens after that point forward and how does that impact pharmacology and therapeutics there? Because we have to admit that pharmacy schools have a lot of latitude in what they teach and how they teach it. And right now there are no requirements on how and if at all, obstetrics is taught in that setting. And I think it also offers opportunities for residencies. Right, When we look at all the residency program offerings through the ASHP directory, less than 2% have any sort of experience regarding labor and delivery or obstetrics. I think that's a wide opportunity to maybe add some educational sessions and teachings that we can offer residents and expand their practice and knowledge there. And I also want to talk about board certification. I think kind of like the, the ultimate goal would be to recognize this as its own separate specialty, right? Because right now, I think, by and large, obstetrics is almost looped into pediatrics. But in a way, are we subconsciously infantilizing this adult population by looping them in with pediatrics, I would argue they deserve their own specialty adult care. And we have to think about it in that kind of paradigm. And that'll take a lot to do. But with some of this research that we're doing and we're talking about and education, I think that'll make that more of a reality. And then ultimately, too, we have to think about individual practice settings. We mentioned earlier, every hospital is different. So I think hospitals and pharmacy departments in those hospitals have to think of what are the quality improvements we have to make? What can we offer as OB pharmacy services to individualize to our patients when we're talking about patient-centered care? Because every population is different. And you can look at some of the ways we can help our patients within our own institutions locally regionally and nationally.
2: And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Stephen Small and Dr. Regis Lucia for joining us to discuss their article, Obstetric Clinical Pharmacy, A Necessary Birth of a New Specialty, which was recently published on HHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues and interviews with HHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice.
0: Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.